Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. We're going to continue on righteousness tonight and thank you for coming out. Um, righteousness we defined as the eternal, predetermined, approved standard or design of God for how the sons of God should exist and behave in the earth. Everyone say righteous. So whenever you think that with, whether you're righteous or unrighteous, if you say you're righteous, you are saying God has a design, God has a standard that's pre-approved. Me as a man on the earth, I must fit into that approved standard. On the earth, I cannot do my own thing, live how I want to. I must live by design. I must live by the template that God originally con- uh, set from before time began. So it's very, very important that you keep that definition in your, in your mind, okay? And uh, God, by His grace, made a way for us to be righteous in the first place. He gave His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die for us. And Christ became righteousness to us, Corinthians teachers. So those of us who believe in Him, what, what happens is we were divorced or alienated from God through sin, separated from Him. He wanted to reconcile us back to Himself. So you cannot be reconciled to God while still remaining in your sinful state. Because the design of God in terms of recon- being reconciled to Him demanded that you be righteous to be reconciled to Him. So God knew that man was unable to achieve this on his own. So you cannot do anything to achieve it by your own good works. You have to receive the gift, right? There's something called the gift of righteousness. You don't work for gifts. They are given to you, not based on what you've done, but on the generosity of the giver. You become the recipient of the gift. So righteousness was given to us at the point of initial salvation. These are basic things, but I'm telling you, there's such an attack on basic things today. If you don't get these elementary things right, we're not going to get the higher order things right. Okay? So when I said yes to God, my faulty works um, or my attempts at good works are faulty works from God's perspective. I cannot do anything to be saved. It's by His grace and by His, His goodness, by faith through grace that I am saved. Now, we, we understand that. But now, after having come into the kingdom, I taught you that it is now necessary for you to practice good works, right? As evidence of the fact that you are made righteous by the gift of righteousness. So I received the gift of righteousness, and I am made righteous before God. In other words, I am compliant to, to standards that demand how men should come into relationship with Him. That's through the shed blood of his son, Jesus. So I come into that estate. I come into that relationship and I am deemed righteous. Now that I am righteous, I must then express this righteousness, watch, in every department of my life. At my workplace, in my marriage, how I relate to my children, how I relate to my government, 
right? How I relate to friends. I must make sure in every department I comply to the design of God for that department. God has standards for every department of life. So if you comply to the standard, you are deemed righteous in that area, okay? Or unrighteous in that, in that area. You will discover later on in the series why this is so important. Because it's really going to determine how effective you will be in life, okay? Things like rule and dominion is largely determined on the state of practiced righteousness. How you practice it. How you express it. Daily within your, within your life. Now, I say this to you on Sunday. I want to go through some of the basics. There are two things you need to rule in life. What are they? Romans 5.17 is a key scripture in this whole series. Remember, I entitled the series, Reigning or Grace, Reigning Through Righteousness. Say it together. Grace, Reigning Through Righteousness. What you need in life is the grace of God, right? Because the grace of God causes you to be successful in life. The grace of God is not just God's mercy and grace and kindness to you. When grace comes to you, grace enables or empowers you to live a Christian life that is pleasing to God. So, for if by the transgression of one death reign through the one, much more those who received two things, you've got to understand this. I'm going to take my time to rehearse it even at nauseum. So that it's implanted and installed very forcibly into our spirits. There are two things we need to reign in life. That says, number one, an abundance of grace and what? And the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Okay? So we reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now, in Romans 5, 15, if you back up two verses just before this. It says the following, The free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace um, of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. This phrase you must install into your spirit. Now say it with me. Say, the grace of God. Then say, and the gift by the grace. It's two things. It's the grace of God. And there's a gift that comes because of grace, right? In Romans 5.17, if you drop down two verses later, it tells you what the gift is because it speaks of the abundance of grace and the gift of what? So in, in two verses prior where it says Romans 15, the grace of God and the gift by the grace, what is the gift referring to there? The gift of righteousness. So in the first instance, what produces righteousness? Grace, because it's a gift it's the grace and the gift by the grace, right? So we become righteous initially by receiving righteousness as a gift that makes us positionally righteous um, before God, okay? If you carry on reading down, drop down to verse 21. Watch. Drop down to verse 21. So that as sin reign in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this verse, here's where we get our theme from. Caption, grace reigning through righteousness. God gives grace, watch, and a gift by the grace called righteousness. Once righteousness is in place now, this text tells me grace starts to reign 
in it. So grace becomes king in righteousness. You see, you need grace, but grace needs a context. The context for grace to work is righteousness. You couldn't produce that, so God gave you as a gift so that His grace could start working. Now that you are righteous, what is now expected of you is to practice this righteousness so that the initial grace given to you could multiply and mature to its fullest degree so that you could reign in life. So it is possible then to have the gift of righteousness, watch, and don't practice it in every department of your life. So you become unrighteous in a specific area. And what happens? Grace has no context to reign in. Because grace reigns through or in righteousness. So why are we pursuing righteousness? Ultimately, what do we want? We want the grace. Because grace needs to sit somewhere. Needs to camp. Needs to reign. Needs to rule somewhere. And that somewhere is called righteousness. Okay? So once I am righteous... I must then start to, to practice righteousness, okay? And so, when I, watch, when I receive the gift of righteousness, I am made right with God. I'm reinstated into relationship with Him. Theologically, that's called justification. I'm made right with God, justified in His presence. Now I must start to practice righteousness. Just quickly, I know uh, you know these scriptures, but I need to rehearse them. 1 John 3, 7. <coughs> now that I am righteous, I must now start to, to practice righteousness. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who, who's righteous? The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So I encouraged you to become a righteous practitioner. Right? Let me just say this. You can play on words here. Practice makes perfect. So the more I practice, the more perfect I come become. Okay? They asked, um, who was he? The famous golfer, South African golfer? Gary Player. The first time he hit a hole in one, they said, lucky shot. <laughs> he said, no, not a lucky shot. He said, the more I practice, the luckier I seem to get. He said, this, is hap- this, this hole in one didn't just happen. It happened through deliberate planning and practice And it happened at a point in time. And I'm saying to you, practice doing the right thing in your marriage. Practice doing the right thing in your job. Practice right behavior according to the standard of God in every department of your life. You might not get it right the first time, but have a desire to be right in it. And simply through, I'll show you in a moment, through repetitive use, you master something. Through repetition, you master something. Don't try once, try twice, fail and give up. No. The, the, the righteous man may fall seven times, but he rises up each time. Okay? It's very important that your devotion um, to the thing becomes um, a, a feature of your life. So justification is an, an event. I'm going to say it again. Justification is an event. It happens once in your life. When you said yes to Jesus, he justified you. Remember I told you an easy way of remembering justification is just as if I never sinned. Justification, just as if I never sinned. When God says you are justified, God says from my perspective, I view you just as if 
you've never sinned. Because your sin is forgiven and I've forgotten about it. Okay? Now that you are saved, you're justified, the next process in your journey, you receive the gift of righteousness. Now you must practice righteousness and that process is called sanctification. Sanctification is not an event. Sanctification is a consistent experience right through your life until Jesus comes back. And what does sanctification imply? Cleansing. Washing. I need to give you a few scriptures. These are basic but fundamental. John 17, 17 to 19 says the following. Right? How are you sanctified, by the way? Right? It's through the Word of God. Okay? John 17, 17. You are sanctified through the washing of the, of the Word of the Lord. So John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in thy or in the truth. What is truth? It says your word is truth. So how, sanctify means to wash, consistently cleanse to wholeness. How does that happen? Through the Bible. Through the truth of God's word. You're not going to be practiced in righteousness outside of your exposure to the truth of God's word. That's why I want to encourage you, love the Bible. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. Uh, hear the Bible, hear messages, for example, that we preach, hear it over. Just every time what you hear, study, read, and meditate on God's Word, you must consider yourself taking a bath. Because that Word is going to do what to you? Wash you and clean you up of all the nigginiggies and the nyaga nyagas. <laughs> okay? Going to clean you up of all your nonsense. Right? So you've got to wash daily. Ask your neighbor, have you taken a bath today? <laughs> okay. I'm not talking the natural bath. I'm talking about have you washed yourself in the word of God. Okay. So Jesus here is saying this. He's praying in the garden. And he says to his father, Father, sanctify them in thy truth. And he qualifies, he says, thy word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves might also be sanctified in the truth. Here's a principle for anyone who speaks the truth or teaches God's word. Jesus said to his father, you sanctify them in your truth. And then he says, for their sakes, I will sanctify myself that they themselves might also be sanctified in the truth. So the one who is the word and becomes the medium through which the word is spoken must himself first be sanctified before the word he preaches can sanctify the hearers. The medium or the, 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 the conduit of the word must be sanctified for those who hear to be sanctified. It's a filter. Okay? So I have to ensure if I am a preacher of God's word, the word works in me first before I preach it to others. Okay? Otherwise, I become a hypocrite. Okay? It must work in me first. John 15, 3 is a powerful statement. Jesus said this to his disciples. John 15, 3, he said, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. I like this. When are you clean? Because you heard something. So hearing the word is the process of cleaning you. Now are you clean? You are already clean. Because of the word which I have spoken to you. Do you know, even as you hear me tonight, do you know what's happening to your spirit? 
You're being washed. Think about every time you're sitting under the sound of God's word. Consider yourself taking a shower. It's going to wash you, cleanse you. Don't you feel clean? Like if, after every service, like you were detoxed of some elements. It's like God took out some stuff and purified. That's the process of, of sanctification. One last verse in this respect. Ephesians 5.25 says the following. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her and cleanse, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the, with the word. How does he cleanse her? Washing of water with the word. So the word of God is likened unto water. Okay, so you take a bath and you are cleansed through the medium of God's word. Now I'm going to skip a few things. Some things I want to talk more on Sunday. But while we are on this vein of being washed and cleansed, through um, the word of the Lord, I want to demonstrate to you now how this happens. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. Watch. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says the following. <coughs> All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for four things. The scriptures are useful for four things. What are those four? Number one, teaching. Number two, right, reproof. Number three, correction. And number four, what? Training in righteousness. Why? What is the ultimate objective? What is the outcome? So that what? So that the man of God might be adequate and equipped for every good work. You're not going to be adequate and ready to do any good work that God calls you in life to do until you first engage the Scriptures. You can be successful to a degree, but there's a level of success that will always escape you because you're insufficient for, pre insufficiently prepared for what God has in store for you. Now, I need to say this. Contextually, this is a reference to those that do God's work, the man of God doing the work of God. But you can take the principle and apply it to all men. If there's adequacy that you need, if there's preparedness that you need, you need the Bible, you need the Word, you need both Testaments, not just New Testament. It says all Scripture, right? So you need the entirety of God's Word to prepare you adequately for what God has in store for you. And the Scriptures are profitable for correction, for reproof, for, uh, for well, first for doctrine, correction, reproof. And the last one I'm interested in here is called Training in what? In righteousness. So you are not, you, you're not completely, fully, practically righteous. Positionally you are, but practically you are growing in righteousness in every aspect of your life. And that is what the scripture means when it says you are becoming the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's a process. A lot of people say, I, I am already fully righteous. I believe it by faith. And then, yes, it's true, but then the claim by faith to have something positionally true in your life, you must now show it by what? Your behavior in every department of your life. Now show me how you are righteous and how you engage your wife. Show me how you are, if you are an employee 
and you've got employers above you, show me how you are righteous in how you serve your bosses. Because the Bible has much to say about it. If you're an employer and you've got subordinates below you, show me how righteous you are in terms of how well you manage your business and treat your workers below you. The Bible has much to say about that. Remember I said there's a design for every D? Every D? Department, okay? Someone hurts you, Russian. Uh, and show me then how you are righteous by how you easily forgive that brother. Or are you going to harbor unforgiveness, bitterness? I'm saying we have this dichotomous position. What is true of us positionally must become true of us practically. And the missing link between justification and the ongoing process of sanctification is the one who has got, received the gift of righteousness is his capacity to consistently engage all scripture that is designed to train him. Okay? Now, who loves training here? Hey, who goes to the gym? Hey, we need to pray for some of you that don't. <laughs> okay. I love training. I always, from youth, I grew up this way. And so I, now it's a bit more infrequent than when I was a youth just because of pressures of life, time, and travel, and all, all sorts of things. But the Bible is my gym for life. Because it trains me for what? Trains me how to live righteously before God. Now, it is interesting that the Greek word for train here, you've got to listen to this. Where it says, go back one verse, verse 16. The training in righteousness in the Greek, the word is paideia. And it literally means, paideia literally means to instruct somebody. Originally, it was used of a, a, an older person or a parent, parents instructing children. But the meaning in its usage evolved through time to include chastening. Um, chastening because all the effectual instruction for sinful children of men includes correction. That is why in the verse... It is lumped together with reproof and correction. So training, it's not simply instruction as in giving positive commands to people. It includes the idea that when the person messes up, you step in and you bring them back. You correct them, you bring them back into alignment. That is the idea of the Word of God is your instructor for life. When you veer of the path, what does it do? It brings you back into alignment. Think about the possibilities if you neglect to come to church, like on a Sunday. Yeah? Don't, when you come here, don't sometimes you leave out being put back on track. Yeah? Because that's what the Word of God is designed to do. Okay? It will correct you sufficiently enough until... You walk on a particular path never to deviate from that thing again. So I don't need another Bible study about financial behavior. I've exposed my heart, my spirit to enough financial teachings to just for an A&I to say, we will never veer from first fruits, tithes, and offerings. Right? If we do, the Word of God will come to grace. I don't need an instructor Bible study to how to honor my leaders. I, what have I done? I've practiced it so much it's now reflexive it's oh, i just said to her today i need to organize a breakfast with somebody by next week or by friday 
before I go to Nikala next week. I want to honor this person. I don't think, it's not a hard thing for me anymore. Why? Previously, it was a battle. But what does the Word of God do? It, it, it reproved, it corrected me so much that now it becomes reflective and um, unalterable once you're in a path, okay, of, of, of a particular behavior. So it was used with this in mind. Okay. Now, if you look at um, Ephesians 6 verse 4, you will see the word used in a particular context. Discipline or instructions in righteousness. Now, fathers do not provoke your children to anger. That's for all fathers. Fathers should not unnecessarily exacerbate their children. And all the fathers said, there's no children here, so hardly anybody <laughs> Right? We must not by our fathering style unnecessarily provoke our children to anger. That, that's the text. Many parents I know quote the first part. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. But they must also look at this part. Fathers, do not provoke your children. It's both. Don't just command the children. You must also have the other side of the coin. Right? But bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Now, fathers should discipline and fathers should bring people, uh, their children up in the admonition of the Lord. But in all of your discipline, don't, don't be so disciplined that your discipline provokes to anger. Your discipline should be an expression of your love. My point that I want to make now is, if the Word of God is my instructor for righteousness, your spiritual father usually is the one that will administrate that discipline. Okay? He will administrate that discipline by the Word of the Lord. Now, you've got to read with me. Hebrews chapter 12 from verse 5 to 11. Hebrews 12 from 5 to 11. Hebrews 12, 5 to 11. So who disciplines you? Come on, say spiritual father. Right? The one who is over you in the Lord, your pastor, your spiritual leader. You see two things here. I want to, before I read this, two things. The word of righteousness will instruct you and train you in righteousness. Firstly, by doctrine, by teaching. So every Sunday you come and what do you hear? Doctrine, you hear? Teaching. That in itself is your corrector, your discipliner. Because you're hearing the word and you, you realize, hey, in that area of my life, I'm out of joint, I'm out of sync. I heard the word, the word must bring me back, right? But let's say you heard the doctrine, you go out and you still routinely disobey God. What then a spiritual father will do, he comes to you, not in a vacuum. He comes to you knowing you've heard the principle. But he sees your life out of sync. So he comes to restore you back. In that framework, read this text. Hebrews 5 verse 11. Uh, sorry, verse 5 to 11. Hebrews 12 from verse 5 to 11. And you... And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. So if God disciplines you, you mustn't fob it off. Don't disregard discipline. For those whom the Lord loves, He, he chastises or He 
He disciplines, okay? And He scourges every son whom He receives. I will explain this later when we do a series on suffering. But if you are a son, you have to know the experience of what it is to, for you to be disciplined. It validates you as a son, by the way. It testifies that indeed you are a son because the discipline is meted out because of God's love for you as a father. Discipline is never punitive. Discipl well, it is, it is punitive to a degree, but it's never punitive um, to reduce the person or alienate the person. It is always administered redemptively to reinstate the person, not to drive the person away, to reinstate the person, to draw the person closer. It's never to distance. It's always to draw near, right? So please bear this in mind. And then he carries on. Watch, he says, verse 7, it is for discipline that you, oh, by the way, in verse, this word discipline in verse 7 and in verse 6 is the word paideia, instruction in righteousness, right? If it is, it is for discipline that you endure, then God deals with you how? If he's disciplining you, how is he viewing you? As sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, listen carefully, of which you all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, bastards in some versions of the Bible. The innovate actually says bastards. So God says, if I discipline you, it's proof that you are mine. It's proof that I love you because if you are not disciplined, it is the proof that you are illegitimate. You've got nothing to do with me. So you, because you are mine, I will step in and I will discipline you, declares the Lord. Okay? And then it carries on to say, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respect to them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? Who knows or knew the hand of discipline by your parents? Anybody? Right? My mother had a long black stick. And my father had muscular. He was a bodybuilder. He was a bricklayer. He had his hard hands from bricklaying. One clout put you right. I remember receiving a particular clout from my dad that put me right forever. I didn't meet much persuasion. Pay the rod, spoil the, spoil the child. This verse is arguing, hey, wake up. If your natural parents did that to you, and after the discipline was administered, you still respected them, he draws the comparison, how much more should you rather have a respectful, honorary attitude towards the father of your spirit and live? Right? So just tell your neighbor, learn to embrace discipline. You know why? You know who's a son and who's not a son when you have to discipline them. Sonship manifests in the moment of the need to correct somebody. Right? When you correct someone, you'll know exactly where they are. Okay? Sam Solon said this once, never correct someone that's not your, then, your son. Because then you're inviting trouble. Okay? Um, the next verse says, why, 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 why is the question we need to ask. Why the discipline, right? In verse 10, uh, verse, uh, yeah, verse 10. 
He disciplines us. They discipline us for a short time, it seems good to them. But He disciplines us for our, for our good, so that we might share in what? We might share in His holiness. Every time you're disciplined, it's an opportunity for you to partake of His holiness. The outcome is His holiness. And the next verse is very clear. All discipline. Who loves discipline? Anybody? Hands up. I can give you a dose right now. <laughs> okay. Nobody enjoys it, right? Nobody enjoys a hiding. Nobody enjoys correction. It's not a nice experience. So this verse clarifies. It says something very powerful. All discipline for the moment in which it is administered seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet for those who have been trained. Remember training in righteousness? For those who have been trained by it, afterwards, what is the result? It heals the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Righteousness is the outcome of the process of correction, reproof, and discipline by your spiritual father who acts on behalf of your heavenly father who disciplines you in the area of your soul because the father sees in the area of your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions, you are not complying to what God wants to do in your spirit. You are spirit, soul, and, and body. Okay? The area of your soul is usually the part that is out of sync with the area of your spirit. So the father here is the father of your spirit. According to Hebrews, Hebrews 13, just quickly there, I'm just a side thing. Hebrews 13 verse 7 says something very powerful. Remember those who led you, right? That's, for example, I'm your leader spiritually. So tell your neighbor, please remember him. Okay. <laughs> the Bible says, remember those who who led you, and who spoke to you what? What do we speak? We speak the word, and considered the result of my conduct, only after you checked me out. Only after you've checked me out, right? You've examined not just my word, but my conduct. Only then must you do what? Imitate me. Don't imitate me because I preach well. You imitate me only after you heard the word, and you check, is this guy's life lining up with what he preaches? Then you copy. Drop down to verse 17. There's two critical verses regarding leadership in Hebrews 13 you must remember. Everyone say 7 and 17. <clears throat> Easy to remember. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? What are we watching? They keep watch over what? Over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So what am I watching? Come on, talk to me. What am I watching for you? Watching your soul. Hebrews 12 says, the heavenly father, earthly fathers disciplined you, you respect them. How much more shall you not respect and honor the father of your spirit? The heavenly father is the father of your spirits. Leaders or spiritual fathers watch which area? Your soul. In other words, I'm watching the degree to which are in your soul domain, are you compliant with the righteous standards of God made known to you and received in your spirit? It's your soul area that's usually out of sync. 
How you think, your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. Three areas. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. Okay? Now, go back to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11. Hebrews 12 and verse 11. It's a very important verse to remember. What is the outcome of your engagement with all Scripture? It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. The discipline meted out by your leader through doctrine, and maybe sometimes he will engage you personally to correct you. What he, what he wants to see is that you become a shareholder in the holiness of God, and in this verse, you heal the peaceful fruit of, of righteousness, okay? But the imperative here, you must allow yourself to be what? Everyone say trained by it. Trained by it. Next time you open the Word of God or come to church, go to a website to listen to a sermon. In your mind, tell your mind, I'm going to the gym. I'm going for what? Training. I want to be spiritually fit. Eh? I want to be spiritually fit. Now, I have to give you the Greek word. It's amazing for trained here. The Greek word for training in righteousness in 2 Timothy 3.16, I said to you, is paideia. Remember? Instruction with the idea of correction. But the Greek word for trained here is gumnazo. Everyone say gumnazo. Gum, like G-U-M. G-U-M and Nazo, N-A-Z-O. Gumnazo. Say it again, Gumnazo. Do you know what this word means? To train naked. Don't try it physically. Okay. It means to train naked. And usually in that culture, Greek, Greek athlete, athletes train naked. Right? It also means to exercise. Uh, metaphorically, it, for us biblically, it would mean to be trained in godliness. And I will give you a few verses that will testify um, to this. Okay? Now, I'll, I'll, I love weight training or resistance training. I've done so from my youth. Uh, I was very uh, focused upon it in youth. I, in fact, I was a bit obsessed by it in my youth, such that my pastor had to come to me, Pastor Robin Oliver, I remember, on a Sunday afternoon, we trained seven days a week. <laughs> and I was supposed to be in an opening meeting playing the guitar. And I, I forgotten or something, but I was in the gym training. And he came to the gym <laughs> for me. He said, Randolph, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be playing guitar in the worship team for the opening meeting. I apologized. From that day onwards, I never trained on a Sunday again. <laughs> he said, I'm going to get my priorities straight, he told me. You should be serving, not training, you know. So I love training. I even competed professionally uh, in matric and in first and second year university. Uh, the Nabo Mr. Natal competition. Placed fourth in two years. Never went beyond fourth. God didn't want that for me. <laughs> okay. My point is, I know the idea of training. I know that no pain, no gain. I know the necessity of resistance. So you stack the weights on to increase the resistance. I know that muscles respond to resistance, okay? 
The idea of gumnazo is exactly that. That God will submit you to some, and he will resist some things in you to develop them. Not in a negative way, but in a, in a positive way for you to be challenged. I remember the rigor of preparing for a competition. You had to follow a specific diet. You couldn't miss a workout, come hell or high water, no matter what the weather conditions. But the athlete, never mind bodybuilding, any sport, has to submit himself to a rigorous program of physical exercise. And there is the idea of, of training. The outcome is he wants a particular skill or form developed to such precision that on competition day, he's peaked, he's at its, it's at its best so that his function could be executed way above his competitors. But without, you can't have that display of success above your competition if you haven't submitted yourself to the rigor of consistent daily training. That's the idea contained in this word which says, train by it. It's not just like you do it now and then. No bodybuilder entering a major competition wakes up, I don't feel like training this whole month. It's not up to you, bro. You have an objective. And I'm saying, if we're going to be the righteous standard of God in the earth, we have to approach the way in which the word trains us with the same diligence. It has to be a daily thing. Now, you mustn't allow yourself to slip. Don't fall back into wrong ways of behavior. Uh, say to yourself, no, that's not God. That's not God. I need to, to brush up in this area. I'm in a gym daily. I'm being trained by the word. I, the outcome is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That's, I, want, I want to see that. You can't say to yourself, uh, just five minutes of that porno won't harm me. No, it will. You, you're detracting from the, the idea of consistency and rigor. Don't just say, I'll lie here and there. One, one white lie won't hurt me that much. No, it will. You, you, it's going to impact your preparation for an outcome. Okay? So everyone say rigor. Say consistency. Okay? Now, 1 Timothy chapter 4. What are we being trained in? We've been trained in, everyone say godliness. Godliness could be synonymous with righteousness. I was a gymnast also at school all my life and a little bit in first year varsity. Now, you know, if you watch these professional gymnasts, like in major competitions, if you watch their clothing, you've seen anyone there with an overall and boots come to perform their, their stories, no? No. The, the, the clothing is so light it's made of special material, and it's tight-fitting. You almost can't, you can distinguish the form of the person. It's so close to their bodies. The idea is to wear tight-fitting, light clothing, so as to reduce the element of drag. They call it the element of drag or friction in the execution of a movement. You know, you know the element of drag. Drag impedes momentum or movement. Even a 100-meter athlete, Joash will know about drag, even long jump. You don't want nothing impeding or pushing back momentum, okay? So, let me say, gumnazo, train, comes from the Greek word gymnasion, from which we get the English word gymnasium, and then gymnast. God had these ideas in mind. God is saying to you, I want to strip you of any form of the flesh off you that's going to impede the way you execute my will. 
I need to, I need to strip you of all the unnecessary overalls, gumboots. I need to strip you of anything that's going to prevent your execution of my will. Okay? So the, the process in training and discipline is to reduce the element of drag, which is the carnal fleshly tendencies. Okay? So God's going to strip you so that you become gumnazot or trained in righteousness. 1 Timothy 4, 7. Watch. 1 Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. How's that? Some people like stories. You're like an old woman with your stories. Paul says to his son Timothy, stay away from stories, from fables. He's saying to a young man, don't be like an old woman. <laughs> right? Stay away from the things that should not, you should not be entangled with. But he says, watch. On the other hand, contrary to this, discipline. Everyone say discipline. Discipline yourself for the purpose of what? Of godliness. For what? Bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds, watch, the promise of the present life and also the life to come. The same verse in the New King James. 1 Timothy 4.8 in the New King James says, I like it plainly, it says here, bodily exercise profits what? It profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that is now and that which is to come. You know, I go to the gym. I'm not there for, for more than 45 minutes. Just run, run at the time. It's, it's less sometimes. I see Quentin in the gym there as well. Who's a gymmer? Anybody? Uh, Ashley, I know. Okay. It's very important to exercise. Tell your neighbor you should start if you're not. Even if you don't have to go to the gym, maybe a brisk walk, 15-minute walk or 20-minute walk a day, Dr. Segi says is all you need. He said nothing more than that. <laughs> it's all you need to, to have a good, healthy lifestyle. I watch some people in the gym and the time they spend there and the money spent on something called flesh that's about to perish. You're not taking all that muscle with you when you die. <laughs> You're not taking that physique, that presentation of your flesh, going to stay here this side. I am saying it does profit, but the Bible says its only keyword here is Little, and little here is compared to your inability to take that into the next life. But he says on what you should be spending more time on is training your spirit. Training the hidden part of you that cannot be seen. Your spirit and your soul are the eternal things about you. Right? And I always say, I will never spend more time in the gym than I spend more time in the Word. Never. I tell my body, I tell my mind, you're going to spend an hour in the gym every day, but how much commensurate time will you spend in the Word? And things like prayer or the community of the saints of God, right? Eternal things have more weight than physical, temporary things. All I'm saying is, brethren, give more weight to the things that will have benefit for you in both realms. Physical exercise only has benefit for you now. Godliness has benefit now, it says, and in the next life okay i wrote something when i was typing up my notes here i wrote something that samson said i remember him saying this to one of the schools and i quote him he said 
do not do more physical exercise than as necessary for you to do God's will effectively in your body. Do not do more of it than is necessary for you to effectively do God's will in your body. Right? So you must do it, but not, do not become obsessed. Uh, do not become obsessed by it. 2 Timothy 3.5. 2 Timothy 3.5. It says, holding a form of godliness. Now, the context of this scripture, you see, are we expected to be godly? Yes. Uh, Timothy is instructed to train himself, be disciplined, and train himself in, in godliness. But some people only have it in form. In other words, in appearance, but not in, in essence, or in, or in reality. And you must stay away from such people. It says avoid such people. They have it in form and they deny its attendant power. My appeal to us as a church is don't parade the stuff. Don't act it out. Don't have it in form, but inwardly you're far from it. It's either genuine or it's not. Because if you have it in form, the attendant power will not be present with you. Okay? Um, You've got to have, and if you have someone in your close circle of friends that's a hypocrite, only has the form and not the essence, this verse says, avoid such men. Just stay away from them. I won't have time, because of time, I won't have time to fully explain this. But this verse 5 is as a result of verse 1 to 4. If you read verse 1 to 4, he lists 18 characteristics of what men will be like in the last days. 18 expressions. And he says, if your friends, your inner circle, has any of these, just stay away from them. Because that tends amount to godliness in form, but not in, in, in essence or in, in power. Okay? Now, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. We'll do one or two more because time has raced away and I haven't gotten to where I really wanted to get to. Listen to these words of instruction from a father to a son very carefully. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with doctrine conforming to what? God, in other words, there's teaching that conforms to a pattern of godliness or which teaching or which or whose outcome is godliness right he is conceited if, if you have doctrine that doesn't lead to godliness paul says that guy is conceited he understands nothing he's, he has morbid interests in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy strife abusive language and suspicions facebook is full of this verse Yes, Facebook personified. You look at, I'm talking about religious guys. Claiming to be, they're full of contentious issues and they're using public platforms for this purpose. Paul warned us that there's doctrine that doesn't generate godly lifestyle. Right? And then he says in the next verse, verse 5, constant friction between men of depraved minds, uh, deprived of the truth, who suppose, oh, sorry, we suppose that godliness is a means of, of gain. 
So there's some that will use godliness for self-interest. Godliness for, for, for private gain. Okay? Then in verse 11 of the same verse, the same chapter, rather, he says to his son, but you run away from all of these things. Don't like those Facebook posts. Don't engage contentious discussions. He says, you run away from that, that thing. Flee these things, you man of God. Everyone say man of God. Okay? There are many men of God, but there's no God in those men. If a man of God, you must see God in the man. Therefore, the man of God becomes a man of God. Right? So, he calls his son, you are man of God. What must you chase? What must you chase? Chase after. I'll talk about this on Sunday morning. Chase after it with all of your heart, my son. He's saying, you pursue, you leave what the others are doing. You focus on right living. And what does he put right next to it? Godliness. Because you're going to be instructed and you're going to be trained in godliness. Right? And he lists a whole lot of other expressions there. Second Peter. This is how Peter captures something very similar. Second Peter chapter 1 from verse 1 to 4. Listen carefully says the following, 2 Peter 1, 1 to 4. Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by, right, by the righteousness of our God, Savior and Jesus Christ. Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to what? Come on, say life and godliness. What is Peter arguing here? He's saying, God's divine power has given me everything I need for two things. For life and for, for godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. How? Verse 4, he'll tell you. Verse 4, he says, for by these, right, for by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by, by lust. Now, please hear me. How do you become partakers of the divine nature? I just shared with you from Hebrews 12 that when you're disciplined, you share in His holiness, right? You share in His holiness. And the outcome will be the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Peter is saying here, His divine power has given you everything that you need for life and to be godly at it. How do you get everything from God for life and to live a godly, pleasing life? He says, well, He has given us precious and magnificent what? Promises, and if you, if you double-click on this word in the Greek, it doesn't just mean like the promise of provision or the promise I'll be with you. It refers to the general package of the Word of God, all its principles. That's how you must read this. God has given to you precious and magnificent principles or promises so that everyone say, by them. By them you become partakers of His nature. What is that? That's the Word of God. It's the Word of God by which you partake of everything that is true of him. If he's righteous, he gives his word to instruct you in how to become righteous. 
that will, will correct you. And kumnazo you, it's your gym. It will train you, cut off the flesh from you so that you develop in a lifestyle of being righteous, compliant to every design of God in all departments of, of your life. Now, one last verse and then we close. Hebrews 5.17. This one you've got to understand. Because I'm, I'm going to close off with this because of time. Any other verses we could look at. But because the word gumnazo is used in this passage also. And the word righteous appears there as well. Hebrews. Sorry. Hebrews 5.13. Hebrews 5.13. My mistake, sorry. Watch. Everyone. Or let me just before, for those of you who don't know. The word of God is likened unto water. We know that, right? We read it. It can wash you, etc. The word of God is also likened unto milk. And who drinks milk? Babies. The word of God is also likened unto meat. Who goes to prize and eat meat? Adults. Right? So, right. everyone who partakes in milk is unaccustomed. The word unaccustomed here means unskilled. What is he unskilled in? The word of what? The word of? Righteousness because he is still an he is still an infant. In the New King James, it says everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the in the word. The word unskilled here in the New King James, and we just read in the New American Standard, unaccustomed. In the Greek, it's a word apero. Apero literally means inexperienced. Now, two thoughts I have here. What does the Bible mean when it says the phrase, the word of righteousness? Two things. It could mean, one, that the word itself is righteous. Right? Let me give you a scripture for that. Psalm 19, verse 7. Onwards. 7 to 9. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is a reference to God's word. It's perfect converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Go on. The precepts of the Lord are right, they rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightens the eyes. The next verse says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the judgments of the Lord are true, and they are what? The word of God, the judgments of the principle in God's word, they are righteous. There's a beautiful verse, I don't remember, it's found in Psalm 119, where David says, or the writer says, all your laws are righteous. That could be one meaning. The word of righteousness. But also the word of righteousness could be that the word produces righteousness in the one who engages the the one who engages the word of God. Okay? Now, listen. Do we have the amplified? Listen to this in the amplified. It plainly spells out what the verse means. Okay, uh, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 13. Hebrews 5 and verse 13. Now, in the Amplified, watch. Everyone who continues to feed on milk is obviously what? Inexperienced. And he is unskilled in the doctrine of righteousness. And it explains what it is. Conformity to the divine will in purpose, thought, and action, for he's a mere infant, and he des this describes infants as the inability to, to speak, okay? Now, the, the NIV, 
or the NIRV. Do you have the NIV? The NIV says, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. The NIRV says, anyone who lives on milk is still a baby. The person does not want to learn about a godly life. Now, listen carefully. What do I understand when it says that if you feed on milk, you are babe. But if you strong meat, you are mature. And the one on milk is unskilled or inexperienced in the word of righteousness. Implying that the one who has capacity for meat is skilled in the word of righteousness. It doesn't primarily refer to your ability to engage deeper doctrine. We've always understood it to be that. It primarily refers to the extent to which you've allowed the word to transform you into righteous lifestyle. Righteous behavior or righteous, righteous outcome. That's the intent. He who is mature is the person who can engage the word of the Lord and let that word generate an outcome of righteous behavior within his life. If you go back to the NASB and uh, go to verse 14, it carries on the thought. Watch. I won't have time to unpack this now, but I'll explain it more. It says, but solid food is for who? Solid meat for the mature. We have because of what? Not because of engagement with profound revelation, but because of lifestyle practice. Have done what? Have gumnazoed, have trained their senses to distinguish between what is good behavior and what is evil. That's the mature guy. That's the righteous practitioner. Okay? So you heard people say, oh, that man is deep. He's a deep, you know, profound revelation. Deep, 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 deep. I want to see how deep you are by how you live, not by how you can declare deep things. This verse is saying, don't distinguish the immature from the mature based upon the capacity for revelation. It's by their practice. It's not your capacity to separate between evil and good. Anybody can do that. But the implication, you've trained your senses to discern between the good and the evil so that you engage in godliness and reject that which is evil. Then are you mature. Then you're no more babe. Then you're now starting to make progress in Christ. Deuteronomy 6.24. Quickly, you'll see this wonderful verse. Deuteronomy 6.24. 6.24 says the following, right? Deuteronomy 6.24, So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. Listen. It says, it will be righteousness for us. Now, you don't see the verse here. Just repeat this after me. Say, it will be righteousness for us if we observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as He commanded us. The, the text says, it talks about these statutes that the Lord has given us for our good. And it says, if we obey these statutes, it will be for us what? Righteousness. It will be righteousness for us if we observe 
these commandments. So I want to encourage you to be obsessed by the word of the Lord. Someone in closing. Everyone say the word of righteousness. There are a couple of phrases I want you to install into your memory and into your spirit. The one from 2 Corinthians 3.18. The word of God is profitable because it instructs me in righteousness. It trains me in righteousness. The other is from Hebrews 5.13. Okay? It speaks about becoming skilled in the word of righteousness. Not so much your capacity to handle the book, but your skill in how you live it out, being discerning between good and evil. Right? You observe the commandments according to Deuteronomy 6. That word in your obedience becomes righteousness for, for you. Okay? And then my, my absolute favorite, obviously, is Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is where? In the law of the Lord. And in his law he does what? He meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, heals forth his fruit, fruit of righteousness in his season. Whatever this man does, will it will prosper. Many people stop there. But the word goes on and says, but the wicked, the unrighteous are not so. But they are like the chaff which the wind blows and drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the seat of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So I want to encourage you to go to gym. What did you say, Mark? Gumnazo. Everyone say gumnazo. Come on, gumnazo is your word for the week. Right? Gumnazo. So I'm going to train myself in righteousness. Like a gymnast, like a bodybuilder, I'm not going to miss a worker. I'm going to be so rigorous in how I submit my life to the principles of the word daily. Right? Because by it, I'm becoming a shareholder in His holiness. I'm becoming a partaker um, in His nature. He has given to me everything I need for life and for godliness. By exceeding great and precious promises He has, he has given to me. The word of righteousness instructs me in righteousness. It develops within me through discipline, correction, and reproof, usually through the medium of a spiritual father or leader over me. Speaking the word of the Lord brings my life to such form and function. The drag element in my life is removed. There's no uh, anything impeding the execution of function like a gymnast. Tight-footing clothing, no drag. I can efficiently do the will of the Lord because of my submission to be trained in godliness. The best training you can do beyond physical exercise, which only profits little and has benefit for this life only, the best thing you can do that will benefit you now, it says, and in the future, is to rigorously train yourself to comply with all of God's standards for your life by subscribing to the Word of God, which tells you how to do it. Okay? It's the Word of God in you. So are you going to be serious about this? Yes or no? Yeah? Don't let up. Don't, don't, don't cut corners, compromise, 
and, and say, yeah, I'm going I'm I'm to cut corners here. No, you're in a gym. It's a gym for life. You are being prepared for effective functionality in life. You know, I'm noting in my own life now, there's such an ease to do some things. It's like, even that I sense like a, an increased impartational anointing that's really growing because are now of a more thorough devotion to please God in every facet and in every department of my life. Yeah? Uh, you know what the scripture says? Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they will see. I'm seeing some things now I've never seen before. Right? Because of my, my renewed commitment to doing what is right. It's like eyes just be open. Wow. Didn't see that before. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your word of righteousness that's given to us to train us and instruct us in righteousness, that we will endure the discipline of the Lord, the correction and reproof given by your word. We will endure it, become partakers of your nature, become partakers of your holiness, become partakers of your divinity. You are righteous. Expect us, your sons, to be as you are, righteous. Thank you for the gift of righteousness. Thank you for salvation. Now, God, we ask that you would empower us. I pray. Come on, everyone lift up your hands. I pray grace to everyone that is here and even listening by the audio. I pray great grace and peace to you. May you have the grace to please God. May you do the right thing always. May you comply with all the righteous requirements of your Father as you have statutes to observe. The word of the Lord says to you, to you it will be righteousness. And may you, who are pure in heart, may your eyes see new things. May you behold the deep things of the law of the Lord that you've not previously known before. May God give you sight, prophetic sight, into realms not yet seen before. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you. And may the Lord give you His peace. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen.